Welcome to this message from the teaching ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida, under the leadership of Senior Pastor Mike Osborne. Good morning. Our scripture reading is Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation and said, Their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, They shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they that heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The word of the Lord. Let's take a second and pray, if you would. Hopefully you'll give me permission for that. Father, you have spoken. You have spoken not only because we believe you, uh, but you've spoken, I think, that we might believe. You give us your voice so that we would listen. And God, we need help for that. I need help for that. This church needs help to listen well. So Father, stir us, move in us. Your word is powerful, it is living, it is active, it separates us, joint and marrow. You've said that we are laid bare before you, and I ask that this morning you would give us an ability with joy to lay ourselves before you. Speak. We desire to listen. That is our prayer. Thank you for hearing us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember it perfectly. It seems odd, you know, to remember the moment, the exact moment when I stopped praying. I remember the smells, the sights, the sounds. I remember the chair that I fell and slumped down into just outside the thin white curtain of surgical critical care. There in that chair, I simply stopped praying and a coldness came over my heart that I hadn't really felt before and I didn't know what to do with. It wasn't that I hadn't tried. 22 hours earlier, my wife and I had come into the hospital excited, full of anticipation and joy, blessed beyond belief at what God was doing. You see, we were pregnant with joy because my wife was just very, very pregnant. And all that day, we thought and we prayed and we talked And it wasn't until 15 hours of labor proved fruitless that we began to worry a bit and prayed a little more intensely 
It wasn't until 15 hours of labor proved fruitless that we heard our doctor in a bit of a hushed, hurried tone that screamed of emergency to a person standing next to him. We overheard the words C-section and we felt like things might get a little crazy. And immediately from the moment we got into the room for surgery there on the maternity floor, we realized that a panic button had been pressed. And for the next few hours, there were screams of more nurses and more doctors and more blood and calls to rouse sleeping surgeons from their beds. It was a roller coaster of emotion. We sat there helpless and I was feeling deeply my need. And so I was praying constantly the whole time. Our son, who had been stuck and was difficult to get out, was born and he was healthy and happy and huge. And so there was a a moment of joy and excitement as they do whatever they do to those beautiful, red, gross-looking babies that are new. And they carried him out to to make sure he was healthy and to get all the vital stats that we would want to know. But the bleeding wouldn't stop. And so I sat there for 45 minutes to an hour more with my wife, hearing doctors try to decide what they could do to help her. After that 45 minutes, I spoke with a doctor whose hair was matted and everywhere from waking up from his bed and driving over to help. And I thanked him and he said, I think everything's going to be all right. And just as he said that, the doors flew open and a bed came flying down the hall my wife, white as a ghost, and she was headed down to the basement because they couldn't figure out how to stop the bleeding. Four or five hours after transfusions that amounted to more than twice the amount of blood in her body, they determined that they needed to go in and to, uh, to do another surgery, and it was sometime just before that, sometime just before 5 a.m. that I slumped in a chair, and I simply gave up on praying. Doubt crept in, and I thought, this doesn't matter, apparently. At best, I was a fatalist at the moment, and I just thought, God, if you're there, you do what you want anyway. Hadn't we prayed for nine months? Hadn't we prayed for 15 hours? Hadn't I prayed for five hours in a moment of need? And there in that moment, I doubted. It scared me, and for the next few months, I really wrestled with what that meant My wife recovered and she was fine and she's healthy now. But I wrestled and I thought, wasn't I supposed to be a pastor? I was serving at a church at the time. When people come to see me, doesn't it say pastor in front of my name on the door? Aren't they supposed to walk into a beacon of light and encouragement? Angels singing in my office and faith being dished out like doggy bones. And so I wrestled and I thought, how could this be in a moment of my greatest need, in a moment of my weakness? How could doubt creep into my soul? And it scared me. And I suffered and I trembled and I thought and it made me reconsider everything that I knew about my own faith. It made me realize and to be more grateful every day that I wake up and I believe To be here this morning to say, I believe that Jesus Christ, the perfect one, died for me. And by trusting in him, exchanges his life for mine. That faith is a gift. That faith is an amazing miracle. And this morning, we're going to consider the uncomfortable, the unspoken about flip side of that faith. Because doubt is uncomfortable, isn't it? 
That's one of the things that people will say about church and maybe say one of the reasons they don't show up is because it seems so stale, it seems so perfect, so porcelain. But I understand deeply in my own heart, I speak as a doubter and I speak to a group of doubters here this morning. There are no other kinds of people. And so in a moment, we're going to walk through this text, hopefully, thoughtfully, at a good pace in Hebrews 3 to bring out what I think we could sum into one short phrase. This will be the phrase for the morning. You'll see it up on the PowerPoint in a few moments. But the phrase for the moment that I hope to distill out of here is this one fact, that doubt is a common, perilous condition of the heart. That doubt is a common, perilous condition of the heart that has a remedy. That's the good news. I won't leave you totally hanging here. Doubt is common. It's a perilous condition of the heart. It's remedied by faith and repentance. So let's note, here's the first slide, the first point. Doubt is common. It would do us well to just admit it from the start. This moment that we're walking into here in the beginning of Hebrews 3, really six verses in, starting in the seventh, I'll give you a little bit of background because I think it's going to help with what we're talking about here this morning. The writer of Hebrews is intent on one thing, to exalt Jesus and to say he is superior, he is better, he is more than. And for three chapters, two and a half chapters, he has been giving us every reason in the world to love Jesus, to look at him and to believe in him. But like any good persuasive person, he realizes that there are different ways to motivate people. And so here in the seventh verse of the third chapter, he changes his tone. He goes what you might, from what you might call positive reinforcement to negative reinforcement. You guys all know that, right? We're beings that love, we respond both to reward and punishment. If you've been a parent, you realize this. And sometimes your kids are even different in these ways. I have one child who responds to positive reinforcement. He loves reward. In the midst of struggles with potty training with him, which is sure delight, it takes uh, very, very, very uh, quickly, it doesn't take very long as a parent to realize that you will be forced into discussions about bodily functions that you never wanted to enter. In fact, it's your duty. It's your job. And so one of my sons was having a real problem with what we could call his performance in this area. And we could not know, we did not know what to do with him. It seemed willful. It seemed completely calculated sometimes. We knew that he could, but he just didn't figure it out. And then one day we just thought, you know what? It seems like he really likes dessert. This kid loves ice cream, chip off the old block, right? And so one day we just said to him, here's the deal. If your performance improves, you will get a big bowl of ice cream after dinner. I kid you not. There has not been a single drop of wetness from this child since that moment. Boom! Immediate positive reinforcement. He was on it. Didn't work with another child. A different child, a mere whisper of punishment or loss. And he whips into shape and he with joy says, I want to obey. Because he responds to negative reinforcement. And so here in the seventh verse of Hebrews 3, we start to get a bit of negative reinforcement. I say doubt is common. Most of you realize and maybe are tempted in that moment when I say doubt is common to say, of course it is. Talk to those people out there, all those unbelievers. The interesting thing about the warning given to us in Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 7, is that he starts in here. 
his admonition is about the people of God and their doubt. And so I mentioned Israel here. You probably know their story, right? Their story is not one of perfection. In fact, it's one of sinning relentlessly, testing God. And this section of Hebrews chapter 3 is borrowed from Psalm 95. It's a bit of an object lesson. The writer of Psalms took this and summed it up for us as a message of what Israel's problem really was. It's an interesting kind of textual note in verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now, we all know that someone wrote the Psalms, a human, but the Bible gives us self-authenticating evidence here that God is speaking forth his word to us. And he gives us this story. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, don't be like those people in the wilderness generation. The exact moment that he talks about here, this group that was testing him in the wilderness, comes from Exodus 17. You probably know that story, but really the summary here is from over 40 years of continual unbelief and testing of God. It's not until Numbers 14 that we get really the rest of this. Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He makes a very big point in commenting on this from verses 16 to 19 of Hebrews 3, that we ought to be shocked at their unbelief, not because they were skeptics to begin with, but their doubt is so offensive, so shocking, so crazy, because they were the very people whom God had delivered. This message is for us because we are those kinds of people too. He says, who was it that heard and rebelled? Who were these people Oh, they must have had a terrible pastor. They must have had a bad church experience. They must have had this. He says, no, these were my very loved ones, my rescued ones. They had Moses. They were led by the greatest leader in the history of Israel to that point. And wasn't it those ones who still disobeyed and still walked in unbelief and therefore did not enter the rest? And so now we've moved from thinking maybe this unbelief and this doubt is out there with those people, and maybe we've considered and said, okay, so in the history of God's people, there's some who struggled with doubt, but the writer doesn't let us off the hook. In verse 12, he says, take care, brothers. Watch out. That's literally the thing. The NIV, I think, says it really, really well. What you heard read, see to it that this kind of unbelief does not take residence in your heart. I'm going to give you a quick list just to really summarize how many times doubt is a common theme of the Bible. I appreciate Andy mentioning it. I'll say it again. Here's a little list for you. Just a few doubters, just a few people that have experienced maybe what I experienced there in a moment outside of a surgery room. Adam and Eve was their sin, not that they doubted God's goodness. Abraham, who received a promise about as directly as he could, He decides, you know, I don't think this is happening and has Ishmael. King David, how many times from a cave did he say, God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? How long? Why do you not hear me? John the Baptist, who was endowed in the spirit in the womb, who was the very one who saw heaven opened and God's voice come down and a dove descend. Later on, we hear John the Baptist sending some messengers and saying, could you go ask that Jesus guy? Are you really the one? Peter, you know Peter really well. He put his foot in his mouth every other second, right? 
Peter says, I'll never deny you, Lord. And Jesus says, I'm going to sift your faith so fast it'll make your head spin. And three times with cursing, you'll deny me. Thomas, we know well, his very best friends came to him, people he'd walked with, people who had seen the same miracles that he'd seen. And he says, no, you know what? I I just can't believe this. I got to see it for myself. The first thing to do, the first way to overcome doubt is to admit that it's an issue. It's a problem. It's not that you have everything together in your brain. It's not that you just believe perfectly. It's just that you struggle with sin. Your sin is connected to unbelief. And so the next point that we're going to make, something that I think is really interesting and something that we need to constantly go back to from the Bible is that sin or that doubt is a condition of the heart. This passage is heavy. It's a warning passage. And sometimes we don't like warning passages, but we go with God's wisdom and it's here for a reason. And I want you to notice how many times doubt, something that normally becomes an intellectual conversation with people, how many times doubt, believing, is connected to the heart. Verse 8, from quoted from Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts. Verse 10, God's complaint about the people of Israel. They always go astray in their hearts. Verse 12, take care, brothers. See to it, brothers, that there's not an evil, unbelieving heart. Again, 15, this theme, the writer of Hebrews just nails it. Do not harden your hearts. And then the connection he uses almost as synonyms, verse 18 and 19. And then it continues in chapter 4, if you read on. At one point, he says that Israel did not inherit rest because of disobedience. And in the next verse, he says it was because of unbelief. The reason he uses two different words is because to him, it's the same thing. Your unbelief takes root in and resides. <laughs> My voice box just said, no, thank you. It resides in your heart. There is a connection unseparable between the things that you desire, the things that you want, and the things that you believe. Tragedy strikes. Temptation comes. And you want something, and so you wish and you believe that Christianity is not true in that moment. It's really amazing, the psychology of sin, how connected it is to the things that our heart wants. It happened in Adam and Eve. They believed there was something better, something else, something out there. There's a quote from a guy, maybe you've heard of him. His name's C.S. Lewis. I, um, it seems so cliche to have it in here. It's just that no, no sermon can be without mentioning him. So I think we have the quote here. And I want you for a moment to think about what Lewis says in some letters that were published about the psychology and the nature of our hearts. I think one may be quite rid of the old haunting suspicion. It raises its head in every temptation that there is something else than God, some other country into which he forbids us to trespass, some kind of delight which he doesn't appreciate or just chooses to forbid, but which would be the real delight if we were only allowed to get it. The thing just isn't there. Quote continues, Whatever we desire is either what God is trying to give us as quickly as he can or else a false picture of what he is trying to give us, a false picture which would not attract us for a moment if we saw the real 
thing. Doubt is not a mere exercise of your mind. It is connected intensely and deeply with your heart, which is why it is a perilous, perilous thing to let doubt go unchecked. Proverbs tells us that our hearts are the very wellspring of life and that we ought to guard them. And so we need to take care. The last point or the last encouragement for the morning is this idea that doubt can be remedied. He says, take care as though there was something that we could do, something that we could watch out for. And I know this is going to be simple, much like a little children's book, but isn't that the rub? Sometimes the most simple things are the hardest to execute. We come looking for some ingenious, brand new notion that we've never heard before, and God whispers silently to us, just believe. The remedy is to exhort one another to proclaim the gospel. We bring doubt and repentance because we realize it's the same as disobedience. It's an issue of the heart. And then, like usual, Jesus, in his mercy, exchanges our doubt, our believing of the lie for his faithfulness, his truth. Notice in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 3, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. At least twice over the next few verses, he is the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful. He was faithful in God's house. Verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 3, but Christ is faithful. We bring doubt to Jesus Christ because there's nowhere else to bring it. It's not that Jesus does everything else and then it's your faith somehow that makes it happen. The very faithfulness that you need in your walk with God and your ability to please him comes from Jesus himself. There's a picture in Revelation 19 that is about the most manly, gritty, intense piece of the New Testament. Jesus comes and he brings justice. He has a sword coming from his mouth. He's riding a white horse clothed in amazing garments, tattoos on his leg. And it says that there is one riding on the horse and he is called faithful and true. Jesus is the faithful one. The New Testament tells us that when we are faithless, he remains faithful. We repent this morning of doubt We bring our need and our neediness to Jesus because he is the faithful one. I hope that we haven't been confused about faith. I really think some of the problems, the reason that doubt takes us so off guard is because we think that we can do it. We think faith is something that we do and we can just manage to muster up whenever we need it. But the reality is, Christians, brothers and sisters, you came here this morning not only because you believe, but in order that you might continue to believe. God offers grace to you this morning. God offers his voice to you this morning. God offers you a community of faith together so that your faith would continue. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, I long to be with you. Why? So that our faith may be strengthened one to another.
faith is a miraculous gift of God. And if we are to continue in faith in spite of our doubts, in spite of our doubts, then he must move and through Jesus Christ to give us all good things. The words that I just said maybe have reminded you or made you think about a guy named John Newton. He wrote a song that all of you know. If you don't know it, I'm not sure if you have ever heard a song in your life. The song called Amazing Grace. John Newton was moved by grace. And one of the things that amazed him enough to write this song that would be sung by generations was the fact that that grace was continuing and ongoing, the same grace that came to him powerfully in the hour that he first believed. But you know, John Newton, who was so amazed by grace, didn't write just one song. He wrote a bunch of songs. And this one that I'm going to reference here in a moment is a song that is decidedly less popular. But I think that the feeling and the intensity of this song is perhaps what made Amazing Grace so amazing to him. This John Newton song is called Pensive, Doubting, Fearful Heart. Here are the lines, first few lines from the first verse of John Newton's song. Pensive, doubting, fearful heart, hear what Christ the Savior says. Every word should joy impart and change thy mourning into praise. Yes, he speaks and speaks to thee. May he help thee to believe. Doubt crept into my heart a couple of years ago outside of a surgical care unit. This morning, I stand before you and I profess that I believe in Jesus Christ, the risen one, not because I figured it out. I found a place to go and put my doubts. I stand professing Jesus Christ in belief because Jesus has helped me to believe. I want to end this morning doing exactly what the writer of Hebrews instructs us to do. I'm going to end cognizant of a few things. One, that this is a particular kind of doubt that we've been talking about this morning. There are levels of skepticism and questions and wonder that are very healthy and are very good, and you'll need to engage in those kinds of conversations with people. Those things have been left unsaid. I close this morning also realizing that some of you are right in the moment, right in the midst of the kind of doubting that I experienced. And you'll need to extend from this moment and go deeper with those conversations. A couple of quick things that you can do if you are struggling with doubt. I wanted to be practical. We understand that we should call doubt what God calls it. For a Christian, he calls it sin, and so we ought to confess it both to God and to others. Take David's advice. Take the Psalms' advice. Cry out to him. Jude 22 tells us that we ought to be merciful to those who doubt. Sometimes the problem with Christians is we've forgotten what it is to doubt. We forget how amazing this really is. So discuss it with those who mercifully speak the gospel to you. You should remember the connection between your heart, mind, and your will. Sometimes what you have problems doubting is because of something that your heart wants and has been hindered from getting. You put yourself in a position like this to hear the promises of God, recount the ways that God's been good to you in the past, 
And then finally, we confess the truth and pray for grace. Our prayer, even as Christians, is the same as the disciples. We believe. Help our unbelief. And so I thought it would be good. I thought it would be practical. I thought it would be a means of grace to us to hear our confession this morning. We're going to say the Apostles' Creed not only as a statement of truth, not only as a profession and a confession of what God has done in our hearts, but also with an attitude of prayer, saying, God, may this reality be my life as I leave this place. May my doubts be washed away with the glorious truth that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life, died a death that I should have died, and has given his resurrection life to me. So we're going to say that together. I'd encourage you just to read with me on the board, and then we'll pray. I think we had it there somewhere. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Church, this is your confession. Let's thank God and beg God for the grace to continue in it. Let's pray. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. May we be a place that discusses doubt, that deals with doubt, that is merciful with those who doubt. And God, may the words of our lips, the things that we've just confessed, be an encouragement to one another. We are not alone in this. It is your delight to take doubting people. You've used no one else. There are no other kinds of people than doubters. All through Eve and Abraham, David, through John the Baptist and Peter and Thomas, you were gracious. You have sustained your people in belief, and for that we're grateful. God, help us now to go from this place walking in belief. You've given us rest in Jesus Christ, the faithful one. And for that, we are grateful. We pray this in his name. Amen. We at University Presbyterian Church thank you for listening to this message. Our mission is to help people know God, grow together, and serve others. To learn more about the church or how to have a vital relationship with God, visit our website at www.upc-orlando.com or call our offices at 407-384-3300.